Okay, good evening. It's great to see everybody here. Um, so over the last week, I've been soliciting feedback from different members of the share. And um, it seems like one of the most important fe- pieces of feedback that I got was that I was talking too loud last week. So I apologize if I was talking too loud. Okay. <laughs> So maybe if I'm talking too loud, you'll have to move to the podcast. But um, we'll, try, we'll try to lower the volume a little bit, and um, we're going to move on from here. So I want to I do a, a quick recap of what we established last week, and then talk about what we're going to do tonight and going forward. Last week, we quoted the Rambam. The Rambam, who gives us a definition of what Gemara is, it was the first source that we had, and Rambam describes a a robust intellectual process. And it's a, a real exercise of understanding you know, conclusions from their primary sources. We talked about not just amassing information, but, but under, getting, gaining a deep understanding of what happens in Torah Shabbal Peh and expanding upon that to be able to understand the conclusions based on the sources that you have. And that's how Rambam describes what Gemara is. And this is Rambam, Perak Aleph, Halach Yir Aleph. He writes, Inyan Zehu Anikra Gemara, after describing a, an, an exhaustive process of a person using their own intellect to be able to reach a conclusion. That was number one that we brought out. Number two is that we, we mentioned that really the key to knowing how to learn Gemara is really understanding how to learn a Mishnah. As, as Gemara is always an expansion on the Mishnah, if you learn the Mishnah properly, and you go through those steps while learning the Mishnah, you will have predicted a lot of what you're going to see in the Gemara. And you may have actually figured out a lot of the, a lot of the maskanas, a lot of the conclusions in the Gemara. Now, the most exciting part of learning Gemara is when you don't figure out what the conclusion is. And being able to understand, you, know, so you wrote me an email, but I didn't get a chance to respond to it. But yes, it was a long, exhaustive uh, explanation of how the truth is there. And sometimes we're just missing some of the pieces. The process of Gemara is going through that process and reaching those conclusions that you couldn't figure out on your own. Now, we also introduced last week, we put this a little, a little chart over here, where we, once you're able to identify the scenario in the Mishnah, and you're able to identify the issue in the Mishnah, then you're going to want to ask yourself, what would be my default position in this Mishnah without the Mishnah actually giving me the conclusion? So get, get the scenario, get the issue that comes up, and then think to yourself, what will be the default position? And then ask yourself, is the Mishnah's conclusion consistent with my default position? Or is the Mishnah's conclusion different than my default position? If it's consistent, then you'll want to ask, Pshita, this is obvious, why bother going through the process of writing this information in the Mishnah if the average person could have figured this out? If it's not obvious, if it's what we'd call a chiddish, it's a novelty, then you'd want to ask yourself the question of Minola, and where does this come from? Minola Hanimili, how do you know this? So again, learning a Mishnah and asking yourself those questions will predict for you which words you're going to find in the Gemara. Similarly, if there's a case which is similar to the case in the Mishnah, you want, you'll expect to see in the Gemara, Ibayelahu. In other words, the Mishnah has its case. The Mishnah has the scenario, its issue, its response, its chiddush. And then you'll have an alternative case which is not addressed in the Mishnah. And then you want to ask you, what's going to happen in this case? 
And then sometimes when we know that there are different opinions or opposing opinions, you'll expect the Gemara to say, Mantana, who is the author of this Mishnah? So these are all questions that you could predict in the Gemara by simply learning the Mishnah correctly. And that was really our premise that we presented last week. We did it extensively. We didn't go through all the sources in last week's packet. Perhaps we still will. But today I'd like to go through two more cases using this methodology to help us understand what to expect and how to, how to learn this Gemara. And the, this, is, this will appear on page 7. So if you have the packet, it's on page 7. It's case number 4. Case number 4 is the Mishnah and Meseches Erevin. So Erevin is Mesech that we didn't learn that long ago. It was uh, quite, you know, quite an uh, exciting Mesech in, in, in Dafyomi. It was a little bit, a little bit um, difficult and it did cause a little bit of Dafyomi fatigue. And hopefully I'm not going to um, bring anyone back to any PTSD from Erevin going through this Mishnah. But again, it's, it's exciting. And this Mishnah really brings out for us a lot of what we discussed. So this Mishnah appears on Daft Yud Gimel, Amud Beis 13b. And I'd like to go through this Mishnah slowly and methodically and then go through the Gemara and be able to, again, bring out what I, the point that I'm trying to make with this Gemara. And we'll do it again with case number five, which appears on, on page number nine. So here we have the concept, just a little bit of background. The halacha is, you can't just carry anywhere you want on Shabbos. You can't carry from a Rosh Hashayachid to a Rosh Hashayachid, from a private domain to a public domain, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix that. You cannot build an Erev to be matir, something to permit something which is an Isra Midoraisa. Biblical prohibition cannot be corrected by simply building an Erev. For if that was the case, anybody, anytime someone was hungry, while they were traveling, they could simply stop into McDonald's and build an Erev. But that's not how it works. Building an Erev is not something which allows you to violate Isur Midoraisa. It is something which, the, which Chazal instituted with Nisim Midrabanan. So when there's Nisim Midrabanan for carrying, then an Erev helps. What is an Erev? An Erev consist, consists of two lachis and a Korah. Now, the, the Gemara talked about putting a Korah on top of the Mavoy. Okay, yeah, Mavo is an alleyway, and it opens up to a public domain. The halach is, you need to put a Korah, a beam on the top, right? Anybody remember this? To put a Korah on the top. Now, this Mishnah is talking, is addressing that Korah, that beam that goes across the top. The, the Mishnah says as follows. HaKorah Sha'amru, this beam that we described, what should it look like? The Mishnah answers, Rechava Kedei Lekabal Ariach. It has to be wide enough to be able to be mekabel and oriach. So it has to be able to hold a brick. What's an oriach? Oriach is a brick. So that's how, that is how big it has to be. The Gemara continues, the Mishnah continues. The oriach, an oriach, what is an oriach? It's a chatzi levena. It's half of a larger brick. So again, this beam needs to be large enough to support a oriach. What is an oriach? An oriach is a brick that is half the size of a levena. Okay? I think Mark, the Mishnah continues. Shel shlosha tvachim. Sorry, the levena, the, the ariach is chatzi levena shel shlosha tvachim. It is half the size of a brick, which is three tvachim. And then the Mishnah continues, dayo lakora shetei rochava tefach k'de lekabal ariach l'rachba. Let's go through this in our mind. The Mishnah starts off saying, the beam needs to be large enough to support a brick which is half the size 
of a three tefach brick. Okay, for, the, for those, for all our mathematicians in the room, what is half of three? One and a half. The Mishnah continues and ends off, concludes, It's enough for the Korah to be one tefach. That's not half of three. Okay, that's one third. Okay, so the Mishnah says half, and the Mishnah says it's enough if it's one third, if it's one tefach, as long as it can be mekabal ariach l'rachbo, it can hold the brick to its width. All right, that's, that's, that's the first case. Next. Now, rechava k'de l'kabal ariach, ubriya k'de l'kabal ariach. It has to be, first we, we talk about its size, rechava. Then we talk about its strength, how strong does it have to be, k'de l'kabal ariach. It has to be able to be strong enough that it can actually hold this brick and it won't collapse. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, rechava, it has to be that wide, afa pisha ain't bria, even though it's not actually strong. And therefore, haisa shall kash vishal kanim, if this, if this korah, if this beam that goes across is made out of straw or reeds, then rowin osa ki'ilu hi shamatachas. We imagine that this beam is made out of metal. Now it's not made out of metal. And if you were to put a brick on it, it would collapse. But Rabbi Yehuda tells us that we can make believe it's made out of metal. So let's analyze this for a second. I haven't learned the Gemara yet. I'm just learning the Mishnah. The Mishnah is describing to me how large this beam has to be and how strong it has to be. It starts off by telling me it has to be big enough to, be have to support a brick, which is half of three. And then it says it doesn't actually have to be that white, as long as it could support that, it could be, it could be one tefach. All right, what am I going to ask myself? Why don't you say it from the beginning? Say that from the beginning, that's number one, which is a very important point. Number two. Why Okay, why don't you just give the measurement straight out? And I think even more than that, how do you know this? Well, this information. So this is information that I, I'm not going to say pshita. I'm going to say, how do you know this? But okay, now in the next half of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda pulls off a really fast one on us. He, he brings in this idea of Rowan Oso. We imagine. Okay, that seems to be like a, a, a pretty big Chiddush to me. My default position would not have been that if something's not the right size, I could just make believe it's the right size. Right? I never would have said, if something needs to be strong enough to hold the brick... And even if it's not strong enough to hold the brick, I'm going to make believe that these reeds and this straw is actually strong enough and it's like metal. So that's, that's, that's a pretty big Kiddush. Okay, the Gemara is going to deal with that, obviously. And how do I know the Gemara is going to deal with that? It happens to be that I learned the Gemara. But I will know by virtue of the fact that this is such a big Kiddush that there's, it's impossible that the Gemara is going to simply go forward and just say, okay, that makes a lot of sense and go on. But now once I've learned that halacha, once Rabbi Yehuda already taught me his halacha, let's now go to the third part of the Mishnah. Akuma, what if this beam that goes on the top of the mavoi is bent? It's curved. The Mishnah says, don't worry about it. Rowan osak ilu 
Just make believe it's straight. And we have a problem with that? It's not straight. It's not straight. But I already was informed by Rabbi Yehuda earlier that if it's not strong enough, then I can make believe it's strong enough. So now why would I think this is different? I'm not sure. Agula, what if it's round? So it's not, in other words, it's not a four by four or a one by one like we said or one and a half by one and a half. It's round. So what does the Mishnah say? Make believe it's going to be it's square. And then the Mishnah says, Any time you'll have the circumference of this round beam, three tvachim, you'll have the width of a tefach. And we have a problem with that? Yeah. <laughs> How much is pi? <laughs> 3.14. Right. So it's not 3. If, if pi is 3.14, I mean, I'm not the math- mathematician in the room, but the math is off. Right? So your, your question should be, number one, once Rabbi Yehuda already introduced this idea to me, that you can imagine a beam to be made out of something else, I could imagine a beam made out of straw and reeds to be made out of metal, so in other words, I'm already in that world of saying I don't need it to be exactly a thick piece of metal. As long as it goes from one side to the next and it's thick enough, it's good enough. So now I already was introduced to the concept of Rowanosa. So then why do you need to demonstrate this to me so many times? Why do I need to know that if it's curved, I can make believe it's straight? Why do I need to know that if it's round, I can do the math and get its circumference to know what the diameter is going to be. Right? Fair questions? Now you'd expect that these questions would be addressed in the Gemara. And this is not an easy Mishnah. And I'm, I chose this Mishnah intentionally because it's not an easy Mishnah. But even when you come to a very difficult Gemara, like a Mishnah Maseches Erevin, which is, again, getting very technical and describing the halachas of building an Erev on Shabbos, you don't need to be a Gemara genius to predict what this Gemara is going to talk about. Reading the Mishnah and analyzing it already tells you what most of the Gemara is going to talk about. Now I'm skipping. I, didn't, I can't do a whole Amr of Gemara, otherwise you'd be doing Dafyomi over here. So I, again, I have a lot of Gemara on the page, but I, went, I chose out a few pieces. Go to the Gemara now in the second box, and we're going to skip to Akuma. Akuma roen osa kilu hipshuta. Okay, it's the second box. On page 7, which is, if it's curved, we view it as if it is straight. Now, what does the Gemara say? Gemara's, the Gemara's line is obviously going to be pshita. Why is the Gemara's line going to be pshita in this case? Not because it's obvious to me and you, but we already introduced the concept of Roanoso in the first half of the Mishnah. So the Gemara wants to know, you already introduced me to this novelty, this new idea, that if you have a Korah, which doesn't fit the exact description of how it has to be, we're able to use our imagination to make it work. So if that's the case, when it comes to a beam that's made out of straw and made out of reeds, so then what is going to be different about a beam that's curved? Now the Gemara goes on to explain, And the Gemara says, well, you know what? And this is, this is I'm bringing this in also because Again, you're not going to know everything. You're not going to know every answer. 
Because you have to know what Rabzeira says in order to know this, this answer. So I'm not promising you that if you think of the question, you will know the answer, but you'll be so far along the way in the Gemara of understanding what you're trying to accomplish that when Rabzeira's opinion is introduced, it's much easier to answer the question. In other words, a proper understanding of the question lends to an easier understanding of the answer. The Gemara introduces Rabbi opinion as follows. Dom Rabbi if the Korah is inside the Mavoi, but the curved part of this beam extends beyond this courtyard, or another case, this, this beam is within 20 Amos, it curves up and goes out of 20 Amos. If anybody remembers, there's a parallel Mishnah in Meseches Erevin and Meseches Sukkah. Both Erevin and Sukkah begin with a very similar Mishnah, and they describe the concept of when something goes up above 20 Amos. A Sukkah, which is the Mala Mechap, higher than 20 Amos, is possible, it's disqualified. Same thing is true. If you have this Korah, which is higher than 20 Amos, it's also no good. What's the reason? Can't see it, right? You can't see the beam. The whole point of the beam is to create a recognition. If you can't see it, how's that going to work? So now, if the beam begins within 20 Amos and curves up outside of 20 Amos, or it goes too low. In other words, it starts in the right place, but it goes too low. What's the halacha? This is the idea of lavod, and we bring in the concept of Rabbi Zerah. Again, I don't want to get too deep into Rabbi Zerah, because that's not the point. We're not learning Masechus Erevin now. But here we have a pretty easy-to-predict question. Now you have to learn something new from Rabbi Zerah. And once you learn the halacha from Rabbi Zerah, who explains to us that we can't always use the concept of Rowan, it really needs to fit a certain level of description. We've now limited the idea of Rowan. Right, so that's the idea. Number one, Rabbi Yehuda introduces to us in the Mishnah a concept of Rowan, okay, which is pretty much using your visual imagination to make believe something's different than the way it is. Rabbi Yehuda says that. I now accept that to be the case in all cases. Now the Mishnah goes ahead and repeats it. I need to ask myself, why repeat it in another case? I don't know the answer to that because I have no idea why a curved beam would be different than a beam that's made out of reeds and straw. But I already know the Gemara is going to have to ask why I repeat the case. Once I'm learning the Gemara, I can now see Rabbi Zera comes to limit the concept of Rowan and say Rowan works like Rabbi Yehuda. It extends to other cases, but it stops at a certain point. Where? Where does it stop? Where it's beyond three Tvachim, and he goes on to explain that case. Let's go to the next one. Oh, I feel like I think I... I left out the part. Oh no, on, the, on that point also, the Gemara says, Hanami Pshita. Again, what Zera's halach would also be obvious. What's the reason for that? The reason for that is, again, if it doesn't extend, be, if there isn't a space of three Tvachim, then why would it not work? Again, there, there is information you need to know about Lavud, but you're including Zera. why would I think not? Because again, remember, Rabbi Yehuda brought in this concept of Rowan, of using your visual imagination to change its reality. Why would I think that there are any limitations to that, that I would exclude Rabbi Zerah? 
Right? Now we know there is one case which is an exclusion, but the Gemara says, Hanami Pshita. And the Gemara goes on to another case. The Gemara says it's possible that I would think that if part of the beam goes out of the area where it's supposed to be, maybe I'll carry in a place where I can't carry. All right, now it makes sense. But again, why am I bringing this here? Not to teach you a Gemara Masechus Erevin. But again, to show you how even in a very complicated Gemara, you will have to introduce some new concepts to yourself, but the structure already fits because you've already predicted it. Now, what's the problem that we still have here? We still have a problem that there is just a mathematical error in the Mishnah. Right? Mathematical error is that pi is 3.14, it's not 3. Okay? But if you were thinking very deeply about that, you might say that maybe there is a major chiddush here in the Mishnah. What's that major chiddush? That perhaps you don't need it to be exact. So either there's a mathematical error in the Mishnah, or there's another problem. Why does the Mishnah need to tell me anything which has the circumference of three tefachim is going to have tefach will have a diameter of one tefach? It's pretty simple to, to figure that out. Take a pipe, which is one tefach, and wrap a string around it, and then measure the string. So this is again obvious. So when you read that in the Mishnah, what should you ask yourself? Why offer me information about math? Why do I need the Mishnah to teach me how to do math? It must be here for a reason. Worse than that, if you're going to teach me math, at least teach me the correct math. Right? So if the Mishnah goes out of its way to teach you math, and then it teaches you incorrect math, that should put a large question mark at the end of the Mishnah. The question you should ask yourself is, number one, why teach it? Number two, why not teach it correctly? Okay? And, yeah, there's another question. We'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. So what is the Gemara? And again, the, the question we always ask is, how do you know it? Right? How do we know this information? So the Gemara asks that question, right? If you look at your page, Agula rowan osa humarubas. Something is round, even though you can't actually physically support a brick on it, I don't recommend that you put a round pipe at the op- entranceway to an alley and then start putting bricks on it because somebody is going to get hurt because the brick is not going to stay. It's round, right? So the brick will fall off at some point. So now, do I really need, after all that I know in the Mishnah already, do I really need the Mishnah to teach me that if it's round that I could just do the math and figure out if it's large enough. Again, the point of this beam is not to support bricks. The point of this beam is to create something which is noticeable with regard to carrying. So do I really care if it's round or if it's rectangle or if it's square or if it's, or if it's an octagon or a hexagon? Do I care what it looks like? I don't really care as long as it's large enough. The point is that it should be large enough. So again, Gemara says, Hasulamali. In other words, for those who speak Yiddish, Gnukshain, you've told me this idea enough times already that if something is not actually a perfect one and a half by one and a half square, it's going to work. So why do it again? So the Gemara says, Seif Tzrichalei. We mentioned the case of the round beam because we wanted to teach the halacha which comes out 
in the Seifa. What's the Seifa? The end of the Mishnah, which is Kol Shloshah Tefach. In other words, says the Gemara, not only was it necessary to write the math in the Mishnah, but we went out of our way and wrote an extra case in the Mishnah because it was so important to teach me that math at the end of the Mishnah. So now what do we see? Clearly the Gemara's understanding that if the Mishnah went out of its way to add in mathematical information, it needed to be there. How do you segue from a Mishnah which is teaching me the size of a brick into teaching me math? Well, you have to give that case. Right? We're getting technical here, but again, just, just to try to kind of draw everyone back in to remember where we're at. We're at a Mishnah, a complicated Mishnah, Maseches Erevin. Mishnah begins with a rule. The scenario. The scenario is, already presented in the previous Mishnah, you have an alleyway which connects to a Rosh Hashanah, to, to a public domain. The halach is, you need to put a beam at the top to make it noticeable like this, you can carry inside that alleyway. Okay, fine. What, is, what should that beam look like? The, the Mishnah tells us what it should look like. It should be something strong enough to be able to hold up a brick. What size brick? A, a tefach and a half brick. Does the beam actually have to be a, a tefach and a half? No, the beam could be one tefach and that's enough. Then the Mishnah goes on to, to say that even if that beam holding up the brick, technically holding up the brick, is not actually strong enough to hold up the brick, it's okay. And the Mishnah found three ways to write that. One with reeds and straw. Another one if it's curved. Another one if it's round. Okay, so now your question you're going to ask yourself before even reading the Gemara is, number one, how do you know this concept of Rowan, that you can imagine it? Once you've settled that, why repeat it again? So the Gemara addressed that. And then you say it again when it comes to round. Why say it a third time? For the third time. In other words, you said it once, you got the news. You said it twice, you were bothered by the news. You said it a third time, okay, okay, we've heard it. We've heard your Kiddush now. Why say it again? So you'll, you'll predict that question. The Gemara now has to come up with a solution to that. And the solution is, we needed to teach you the halacha of pi. Okay, we need to teach you how to do math, which is, the circumference is always going to be three times the size of the diameter. The problem is that that's not really not true. So the, what does the Gemara say? The Gemara begins but with a minahani mili. How do you know that if the diameter is one, the circumference will be three? And the Gemara quotes a pasuk from Shlomo HaMelech when he's describing making a mikvah inside the, in the base of Mikdash. Um, I'm going to leave that out. I don't want to get, I, I think this was technical enough without going through all that, all that information. But clearly, now we understand after all this is said and done, that the Chiddush of this Mishnah couldn't have been the math, because it's wrong. Right? Measure it. The Chiddush has to be that even though it's wrong, it's enough. Right? In other words, I'm skipping, because I don't want to go through the whole Gemara. I think it's going to be too difficult to spend too much time going through that. But if the, if the Gemara tells us that we added in a third case, which was obvious... And the entire reason why we added in that third case was because I wanted to teach you a little bit of math. That math better be right. Right? If you went out of your way to teach me math and it's wrong, then why did you do that for? I could have gone to math class and got the right, 
the right, the right solution. I came to your class and I got the wrong answer. Okay? So clearly, but then I'll stop for a second. If it was right, if the math was right, then I wouldn't be satisfied. Why teach me math? I could just measure it. It's very simple to measure that. You take a string and you wrap it around the pipe, put a little black line at the start and at the finish, and then take it, put it on your ruler and measure it. You don't need a mission to teach you that. So that, in other words, I wouldn't be satisfied if you repeated the last halacha in the Mishnah to teach me how to do math. And the math was exactly what I could have figured out by just taking a tape measure and measuring it, then I didn't need you to add in a whole third case in the Mishnah just to teach me that. I could have figured that out on my own. What's the proof that I could have figured that out on my own? I don't think that mathematicians who came up with pi learned this Mishnah. It's a pretty simple thing to figure out. So what's the answer? The answer is that even though it's not correct, the Kiddush of the Mishnah has to be, even though it's not correct, it's a little bit off, but when it comes to the halacha, we're not going to hold you in this mathematical equation to that, one, that, that, that point one four at the end. Three is enough. So even though three is going to have a little bit less than one tefach, three is enough. Okay? So that was example number one of, again, using this approach to learning a Mishnah, how we pretty much predicted the Gemara, and we were prepared for its answer, and when it gave an answer, it made sense to us. Okay, let's do it again in case number five. Before that, any questions on case number four, Gadari? It has to be, because it, it will always be a little bit under a tefach if your circumference is three. Okay, a case one. Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. In other words, you want, you want to now say that if it's, le- if it's good enough to be less than, less than a tefach when it's round, perhaps that would be okay even, even if it's square. It's a good question. It's a good question. I'm not sure. I got a question. Go ahead. So if, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that, I don't know when pi was identified, but maybe this was before pi, and so that really isn't mistaken to begin with, and this is the information that they had at the time. It, is it possible that they had that information? I mean, well, is it it, was, maybe this before pi was identified. So pi, maybe pi wasn't identified, but at the end of the day, it's, pi is not like a discovery. Pi is an observation, right? It's an observation. You don't need to be a, you know, a researcher to come up with, with pi. You need to be able to observe that every time... They would have known it's a little bit greater than 3, whether new was 3.14 or 3.1. Right, it could be they didn't have as precise measurements, but they would have known... Right. Rambam identifies 20, the like, ratio 22 over 7 as... Like before, like, pi as a concept was... Written down, Rambam writes about twenty-two over seven, which is three point one four, which is a pretty good estimate. Right, the Chazanish actually writes about that. Yeah, yeah. Chazanish discusses that. But, what but I'm again, is, is that Rambam is after Mishnah was written? Cer- certainly, so Rambam. I'm just saying, correct. It may not be incorrect with, with the information they had at the time. Oh, sort of like the medical uh, advice they give in the Mishnah uh, in the Gemara is not exactly. Accurate. Maybe we should spend time uh, discussing the, med- the medical advice that comes up in in, in the Mishnah. It's exactly how to deal with that. How it's not consistent with medicine of today. Yeah, but again, I think this is something which is a little bit more, a little bit easier to prove. Take a pipe in your house and do the work. You're going to see. I challenge you to do it. I mean, I'm not a math teacher. 
But uh, I'm pretty... I did graduate high school. And I'm pretty sure that you can, you can test this out. It's tried and tested. It's going to be a little bit more than three. Only a little bit more, but it will be a little bit more than three. So again, it has to be that if the Mishnah gives you a number three, that that was the Chiddush of the Mishnah. That three is good enough. Okay? Okay, that, that's my conclusion. But again, it's using the same idea. Let's do the next one. We'll do one more. This is case number five. A person deposits with his friend, Behemo Kalim. Is anybody, is anybody struck right at this point with any problem in the Mishnah yet? I am. Why give an example of Behemo Okalim? What's the difference between an animal or vessels? Right? Should I now think of all different ideas of things you can ask somebody to watch for you? Maybe he gave him shoes. Maybe he gave him shirts. Maybe he gave him glasses. Maybe he gave him books or svarim. How many things are you going to list in the Mishnah? Why doesn't it just say a little bit more of a benign example? Or just something. But the Mishnah doesn't do that. The Mishnah says behem okalim. Now, when you read this Mishnah really quickly, in Dafyomi, you're not going to spend all that much time wondering why it says an animal or vessels. But as you go through this slowly, you will ask yourself, why do you need both? Or why combine them? Okay, I think that's fair as well. Why combine them? Why are these the two prime examples? Now, what happens? V'nignavu osha avzu. So what's our scenario? Our scenario is... Let's just give names here. Ruvain goes on vacation and asks Shimon to watch his behema, his animal, or his kalim, his dishes. What happens? What's the, what's the issue? V'nignavu osha avdu. And they got lost, or they got stolen. Again, two scenarios. They were stolen, or they got lost. Now the Mishnah goes on and says, Shilem, the person who was watching, the guardian, who was watching, who was supposed to be watching these vessels, Shile, he decided he was going to reimburse the owner, he did not want to take an oath. Okay, so now, there's some information over here. Information is that he paid for it. The Mishnah says, he didn't want to swear. Now, Right away, you would be struck by, where does this Shavuah come from? Where is this oath? Where is this, what oath would we, be, would we be talking about? So this is the Mishnah which actually was very kind to us, because the Mishnah knew that anybody reading it is going to ask themselves, what oath are you talking about? Where did this come from? So the next line in the Mishnah says, Shaharei Amru, for Chazal, our sages have taught us, Shomer Chinam, a voluntary watchman, Nishpa Viyotse has the opportunity to take an oath and to just leave scot-free. So now in this Mishnah, we've established a lot of facts so far. Number one, the scenario is that someone deposited items with his friend to watch for him. The Mishnah doesn't say items, though. The Mishnah specifies animals or vessels. It's, it got stolen or it got lost. That's, the, again, that's the issue that comes up. 
And then the halacha which is specified is that the person had the prerogative, he could have taken the choice of taking an oath and he would have been exempt from paying for it. What would the oath be? The oath would obviously have to be that I wasn't negligent. Again, we could analyze the halacha of Hashem Rechinam later. But Hashem Rechinam is a voluntary watchman. And then what he did was, he took, he, he chose, he was going to pay for the lost items instead of swearing and exempting himself. What's the problem at this point? Nothing. We have, we have no real problem at this point. But now comes the next issue number two. Nimtza Haganov. The thief was caught. What's the halacha? A ganav, someone who steals, needs to reimburse the owner twofold. Kefel. You have to pay back for the item that was stolen and an additional fine, a penalty of double its value. Tovach machar. we actually discussed this not too long ago in Dafyomi. If the thief slaughtered or sold the animal, he needs to pay back either four or five times the value of the animal that was stolen. So he, he's, he's a thief, he was caught, he was busted. The halacha is he has to pay back double or, or four or five, depending on what he did with it. Now, now what's, the, what's the problem that comes up? The Mishnah says, Lumi Mishalim. To whom does he pay the double? Now, before reading the Mishnah, before reading that the Mishnah says that he pays the one who actually has the pikadon, the deposited item, what would you think? This is a classic case where think to yourself, now that the, the watchman, the, guard, the guardian, the person who accepted responsibility to watch this cow, let's just call it a cow, okay? He accepted responsibility to watch the cow, and it was stolen. The owner came back and said, where is Betsy the cow? And he said, I'm sorry it was stolen. I'd rather not take an oath about whether or not I watched it properly. It cost $1,000. Here's $1,000. He pays him back. Two days later, the thief is caught. The thief is brought to Bastin, and they say, hey, listen, you're a ganav, you got to pay double. Or, talach machar, you slaughtered it, we're talking about a cow, talach is, you got to pay five times its value. All right, paying five times its value, $5,000. Who gets the money? And again, everyone might have their own conclusion. Some might say the original person, because when it was stolen, the animal still belonged to the original owner. Others might say, well, the thief was caught after the guardian already paid for it. So maybe the additional penalty money should go to him. What does the Mishnah say? The Mishnah says it goes to the guardian. What's the flip side? He takes an oath that he was not negligent and he exempts himself from paying. If the thief is caught, he pays double. He slaughtered it or he sold it. He pays either four or five times the value, whether it was, whether it was a sheep or it was a, or it was a, a cow. He pays to the owner. Okay, what would you say? What would you say? Again, both of these cases, you ask yourself, what would my default position be? So make sure to always identify what's the scenario. In this case, we have, we have, really one scenario with two subcategories of that scenario. Scenario is a deposit was made and there was a, the item was lost or stolen. Now, subcategory is what does 
the guardian do as a result of that? Does he swear and exempt himself? Does he pay and take responsibility for it? What's the luck if the thief is caught? Mishnah differentiates. There's a distinct, it, it distinguishes between the case where he swore and exempted himself, he took an oath and he got himself out of it, or if he paid. Now, what, should the, what, what would the difference be? Why would there be a difference? I think we're kind of, like, kind of running out of time. This entire is going down the stolen category because the thief was found. We're not addressing Correct. the lost. Part. Well, if it's, if it's lost, so then there's not going to be any fine. There won't be a penalty. Right. Right. So if it's lost, so then, again, the, the, it would be obvious that if the guardian paid for the animal, if the animal is found, so then the guardian keeps it because he paid for it. Right, so, now, so there, there, therefore it's implicit, so you don't really need the second case because it's implicit that the guard just didn't pay for it, that he shouldn't. Exactly, exactly. So now, even before that, we asked another question. Why would a Mishnah specify animals and Caleb? Now again, as we're training ourselves to learn a Mishnah like this, we may not have noticed it as soon as we read it, but as you train yourself to learn the Mishnah this way, you'll notice this. A Mishnah is not going to go out of its way to say things that are not necessary. So if it said it, it's going to be necessary. If I can figure out why it's necessary, I should expect that at some point in the Gemara, the, the Gemara is going to ask, why write this? And you're actually right. If you look at the first line of the Gemara, which is the next box, the Gemara says, Why is it important that we teach this halacha with regard to an animal? Why is it important we teach this halacha with regard to kalim, to vessels? Now again, we're kind of running out of time. I don't want to go through all of it. But if you read the Gemara, you'll see there are differences. You know, taking care of an animal is much more difficult than taking care of vessels. Someone asks me to watch his china, I take the box of china, I put it in my attic, and I leave it there, and hopefully it stays in good shape, right? Now, if someone breaks into my house and steals it, that's a little bit different. Then, if I had to spend every day, I had to go out and tend to the animals, feed them, bring them in, take them out, all the work, it's a big deal to take care of an animal. But you know what? There's, another, there's a flip side to that. The penalty for an animal could raise the price from $1,000 to $5,000. It's a major benefit. In other words, this is like the best insurance policy here. The guy's animal gets stolen, and what happens? He doesn't get reimbursed for the animal plus a rental car. He gets, he gets reimbursed for five animals worth. So hold on a second. Maybe the halakha will be different than Kalim, than vessels. We're all right. How much are the dishes worth? $1,000? So you get $2,000. It's only double. It's very different. So again, we see, if you, as you start thinking about it, perhaps the halacha would only be true in one case. So the Mishnah says both cases because it's needed. Now, is this such an overwhelming point? No. I probably could have thought of it by myself. But again, you're not, you, you, you won't necessarily think of it. But as soon as the Gemara mentions it, you could just read the Gemara really quickly because it all makes sense. Once I've thought about the problem in the Mishnah, why does it say both? When I see the solution in the Gemara, all right, listen, that makes sense. That's why I have to say Kalim. That's why I have to say Behema. So I have to say both. And it all works out. Now, okay, let's, let's stop here. Let's stop here. But again, the, the subcategory of this would be, once you tell me the halacha, now I have to understand the halacha. If you're telling me that 
the guardian keeps the money, I have to be able to halachically explain at what point did the guardian take ownership over this animal that he has the rights to the fringe benefit of the penalty. And that's where the Gemara goes. But again, you would think of this question when you learned the Mishnah, because we asked the question, at what point? In other words, the animal belonged to the original owner when it was stolen. So just because you decided to pay for the animal when you weren't obligated to, that means the original owner forfeited his rights to the penalty? This is a question you'd ask yourself. Now the Gemara goes through a psychological process of trying to analyze it's like a psychoanalysis of how people work under these circumstances. And I can tell you that I, I have been involved in a number of Chosh and Mishba cases that come up. And they're never pleasant to deal with, and I usually try to shift them off to other people because it's never pleasant to deal with and almost impossible when you know the people involved. But when there is a, a financial dispute between people, the advantage of one person being Mivater and saying, you know what, I'm not going to take you through the whole legal process and dragging this out with attorneys and going to court and lawsuits. Let's just make a settlement. That's why there's a concept of settlements. I just don't want to bother with months and months of litigation. There is a financial value, even though even barring the cost of legal fees, but there's a financial value that people would pay not to have to deal with the headache. A headache is expensive. It's, it's actually monetarily expensive. People would pay money to avoid having a headache. So now we can understand, at what point did the person go ahead and forfeit his rights to the additional penalty? Well, you might think there was value in the fact that you stepped up and paid me. So at that point in time, I traded the potential possibility that the thief might be caught and there'll be penalty money. I'll trade that money for the advantage of right now having my money up front. That's essentially what the Gemara says. But now, is that such a major chiddish that you need to be like a Talmudist to be able to figure it out? No. But again, if you're a Talmudist in the way that you learn the Mishnah, if you analyze the Mishnah the way that we're presenting the proper way to learn the Mishnah, then even if you don't know it, once it's presented in the Gemara, it fits. It goes in. It works. So again, all this what we did tonight was really just illustrating how what we presented last week works. Now, going forward, I think maybe we'll do maybe one more week of bringing in examples of other cases. I, I specifically chose two very different cases this evening. One of them is the, the, a little bit, again, a complicated mission of Masechus Erevin to bring out this idea of, again, it's a little bit of a different way of looking at it, but if a Mishnah tells you something which is obvious or even wrong... So then I have to ask myself, for what? And if the Gemara tells me that the entire purpose of bringing in the third case was to teach me this false mathematical equation, so then I have to ask myself, what's the Chiddush, what's that there for? And then when the Gemara says it, it will make sense. Similarly, when it comes to, to monetary things, to financial arrangements, again, most of us are probably able to predict these, these cases on our own. But as you read the Mishnah, when you go through it slowly and methodically, you will have already uncovered a lot of what the Gemara's job is going to be for the next Amr and a half. Any questions? We're good? Have a wonderful night. I'll see everyone in Mitzvah next week.